notes along with the message notes from your bulletins. Now, I mentioned to you a few months ago that my youngest daughter, my seven-year-old daughter, Kara, we had uh, bought a new cell phone for her uh, because with her diabetes, we needed to be able to have an app on our phones that we could track her at any time of the day, uh, whether we were with her or not, to know what her blood sugar is at. And so we got her a, uh, a new phone a few months ago, and I'd mentioned to you she learned how to text, and it was kind of funny in that first 24 hours because uh, I get my very first text from Kara, and it simply says, Hi. And then at one point, I left the house, and seriously, within 60 seconds of leaving the house, I get this text, What are you doing? Not, not much different than what I was doing 60 seconds ago when I said goodbye to her. And so we had this funny interchange for the first 24 hours or so. And then over the last few months, Kara has turned eight, and she has gotten a little bit better at texting. So this past a Monday, I was out in Lucerne Valley, uh, my second daughter, Haley, I had her first softball scrimmage. And so I'm out there on the bleachers at the school in Lucerne Valley, and the wind is starting to kick up, and it was a cooler day. It was a little chilly out there. And so there I am all bundled up in my jacket, and I feel the vibration in my pocket. I pull out my phone, and it's a text from Kara. And Kara has this text. I didn't do it. Those are four of the most frightening words for any parent to receive. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, is she doing some sort of preemptive strike on her sister tattling on what she did? So I I try not to get too jumpy. Even though it was cold, I was starting to sweat bullets there. And I'm wondering, what on earth did she not do? And so, sweet little girl, she waits a whole ten minutes before doing a follow-up text. I didn't do my presentation in class. Okay, that's a relief. And I didn't have to go down to the police station or Juvie Hall or something. (laughs) But God is good, isn't He? And all the time, God is sure good. I hope that you are enjoying your Christmas season so far. As we talked about last week, for many of us, it is the most wonderful time of the year. It's wonderful to see the lights. It's wonderful to see the decorations. It's wonderful to see the Christmas programs. But in the midst of that, sometimes it's a little bit crazy. Sometimes it's a little bit hectic. And so what we're doing this month is we're kind of throwing the brakes on with this Christmas season and getting back to the heart of Christmas, Jesus Christ, born to save the world. Amen? And so I've done a lot of Christmas message series over the years, but I'm taking a different approach this year. We're going in the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, one by one through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and looking at each of their perspectives on that very first Christmas. Last week, we looked at Christmas through the eyes of the first gospel writer, Matthew, and we learned some important insights from Matthew as he was writing his gospel account to a primarily Jewish audience there in the first century. And today, we're going to turn to the second book of the New Testament, the book of Mark. So I encourage you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. If you don't have your Bible with you this week, Uh, You can grab one of those blue ones from the rack in front of you. You'll find Mark 1 on page 990. And uh, just as a reminder, we do have those message notes in the bulletin. Uh, Some of you, like me, are note takers when you're listening to a sermon. I encourage you to have those uh, message notes handy. You can fill in some blanks along the way. There's some white space on there for you to jot down some notes, some things that stand out to you as we dive into this chapter. 
And I'm excited about this message because I bet you've never heard a Christmas message preached out of Mark chapter 1. And the reason you've probably never heard a, a message for Christmas preached out of Mark chapter 1 is because Mark says absolutely nothing about the nativity. He doesn't say anything about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. He doesn't say anything about the angel coming in a dream to Joseph ahead of time or that angel appearing to Mary ahead of time, letting her know that she would give birth to the Christ child. Mark doesn't include anything about the Magi traveling from the east. He doesn't include anything about the shepherds or the angels in the fields. He doesn't include any of that. He dives right into Jesus' ministry beginning at His baptism. And yet, I want to suggest to you this morning that in the midst of Him fast-forwarding through Jesus' first 30 years, if you look carefully, you can find in Mark chapter 1 a beautiful perspective on the very first Christmas. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is Your Word. Lord, this is Your Holy Word. And Lord, it is an honor for us just to be able to have a copy of Your Word in our hands. Uh, To be able to open it up, and You've given us the ability to read Your Word, to hear Your Word, to study Your Word. Lord, as I'm speaking right now, there are Chinese churches, Lord, that are meeting underground so the government doesn't find out they're meeting. There are Christians uh, meeting in, in Muslim stronghold countries, Lord, that cannot be discovered, they cannot be found out, or they would be incarcerated or maybe even killed. Lord, we're living at a time where more Christians are being persecuted and killed for their faith than at any other time in the history of the world. And so, God, I pray that we would not take this time in Your Word for granted. Thank You for the freedom You give us in this great United States of America to open Your Word together and study Your Word and be changed by it today. And all God's people said, Amen. God's Word's going to be good, isn't it, today? Amen. It always is, but it's especially good today because this is the Word God has for us today. So Mark doesn't write anything about the Nativity. He dives right in. Starting in verse 1, I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles as I read the first 11 verses with you. The beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for Him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to Him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by Him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and Wild honey. Doesn't that sound yummy? And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being opened and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. Hmm. Mark, nothing about the nativity here. 
but definitely a man with a perspective on Christmas. As we saw last Sunday, Matthew wrote his gospel account primarily for a Jewish audience. And so with that audience in mind, he found it imperative to document Jesus' genealogy. We spent a little time on that last Sunday. And all of those names that to us from a 21st century perspective seem so long and so boring and so unimportant, we discovered that there's some beautiful nuggets of truth, powerful nuggets and insights in that genealogy. But Matthew was tracing the family tree of Jesus because to his Jewish audience, that was critical. In order for them to pay attention to his remaining 27 chapters, they in the first chapter had to see that Jesus Christ was in fact descended from King David because they believed with all their hearts that whoever came to be the Messiah had to come in the line of King David. And then Matthew took it even all the way back to Father Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. And so that added much credibility to his message to the Jewish audience as they were able to trace Jesus' family tree right there from the get-go in chapter 1. But Mark was a different man. He was a different man writing to a different audience. He was writing primarily to a non-Jewish Roman audience. And the non-Jews, the Gentiles, couldn't care less about Jesus' human genealogy. They didn't care. They didn't care if his lineage could be traced back to King David. They didn't care if it could be traced back to Father Abraham. They really didn't care. So Mark skips over a genealogy. He doesn't mention it at all in chapter 1. And the Romans weren't even really concerned about where Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That was more of a Jewish thing because of the Old Testament prophecy that said that promised Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. The Romans didn't care, so he doesn't talk about Bethlehem. He doesn't talk about the shepherds. He doesn't talk about the wise men. Mark's gospel account is by far the shortest gospel account. So if you're encouraging a friend or family member who hasn't done much reading in the Bible to begin reading in a certain book of the Bible, Mark is not a bad place for them to start. Matthew's 28 chapters. Mark is just 16. The shortest gospel account. Mark is just very quickly moving from scene to scene, quickly making his way through that gospel account beginning when Jesus was about 30 years old. He picks up there at the tail end of John the Baptist's ministry and at Jesus' baptism here in chapter 1. I want to suggest to you that hidden in these first 11 verses... Uh, that our lessons or our insights that normally we would miss that I want us to take a little time and kind of throw on the brakes this morning and notice some of these insights about the first Christmas that Mark is able to share with us. First of all, note verse 1. He writes, The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now remember last Sunday we talked about some of the names and, and titles of our Lord that Matthew mentions in his first two chapters. In the very first verse of Matthew chapter 1, the very first verse in the New Testament, he makes it clear that he's going to tell the story of Jesus Christ. And we saw that that name Jesus is the same name Joshua. Both Joshua and Jesus means Yahweh or the Lord saves. And so that very first name attributed to our Lord in verse 1 of Matthew 1, makes it clear that the one he's going to be talking about is the one who brings Yahweh's salvation. And then he mentions the title Christ. 
Jesus is the Christ. We saw last week that Christ means the anointed one or the chosen one. Throughout the Old Testament, we had some great followers of God like Noah or King David or Abraham or Esther or Ruth. All of them were wonderful followers of God, chosen by God to carry out a certain mission at their particular time. And so throughout the Old Testament, we have examples of men and women of God who were chosen by God. Throughout the Old Testament, we have examples of men who were anointed by God for a specific purpose. But Christ is a title that can only be borne by Jesus himself because Christ doesn't mean a chosen one or an anointed one. It means the chosen one, the anointed one. So we saw in Matthew that Jesus is the Christ. He also shared that title that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And then early in chapter 2, that Jesus is King of the Jews. Well, I want you to notice here in verse 1 of chapter 1 that Mark repeats Jesus' name. Jesus means Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. He repeats like Matthew did in his very first verse, Jesus' primary title, which is Christ, the anointed one, the chosen one. But then notice at the end of verse 1, that he includes a title for Jesus that Matthew does not mention at all in chapter 1. Mark refers to Jesus Christ as what? The Son of God. The Son of God. Let's take a moment with that. You see, since Mark's audience wasn't very concerned about the human ancestry of Jesus, Mark cuts to the chase in verse 1 and reveals the divine ancestry of Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. Now, most of us have heard this title, Son of God, used for Jesus. Some of us all of our lives. Most of us, for years, we've heard Jesus referred to as the Son of God. And we automatically tend to jump to the conclusion that this title, Son of God, means God. But I don't want us to jump to that conclusion because there are some insights about this title that are shared with us in Scripture that if we gloss over, we're going to miss some of the meat of this title that Mark attributes to Jesus from the get-go of his Gospel account. I want to share with you five insights about this title, Son of God. First of all, throughout the Bible, the title Son or Sons of God is used in reference to many others besides Jesus. Now, Dane, where are you going with this? You saying others in Scripture bear the title Son of God? Yes. A whole lot of others in Scripture. Well, wait a minute. Isn't this a Christian church? Don't we believe that Jesus and Jesus alone is the Son of God? Well, hold your hats and glasses, folks. We're going to do a little study here to see how this word is used and then develop it to a point where we see how it's used uniquely for Jesus. Now, let me give you five quick examples of how this title, title, Son of God, or Sons of God in the plural, is used for different individuals in Scripture. First of all, in Exodus 4.22, second book in the Bible, Exodus 4.22, God calls the whole nation of Israel my firstborn son. So that's the first time we see this title, Son of God, being used. It's referred to the nation of Israel. It's his firstborn son, he says. In 2 Samuel 7.14, God calls King Solomon my son. He says it of King Solomon, King David's son, that he's God's son. He's my son, God says. In Job chapter 2, verse 1, that's funny, I almost said Job. Job 2, 1. Job 2, 1. Angels are called the sons of God. Most of you have heard that story, how the angels are coming and presenting themselves to God, and Satan comes and says, hey, uh, can, can you let me pick on Job for a little while? 
Well, there in chapter 2, it makes it clear the angels coming to God. The literal translation is, sons of God are coming to God to present themselves. So the angels are called sons of God, at least at that point in Scripture. In Luke 3.38, Adam is called the son of God, as Luke gives his genealogy of Jesus's, uh, you know, his family tree. And then finally, in John 1.12, all Christians are called children of God or sons of God in other places in the New Testament. And so these are all examples of how that title, Son or Sons of God, is used of others beside Jesus. It's used of Israel, it's used of angels, it's used of King Solomon, it's used of Adam, it's used of Christians. So it's clear from these examples that the title Son of God does not always mean what we think it means. It could mean a special follower of God, it could mean a special servant of God, or it could mean someone who has been graciously adopted into God's spiritual family. That's how it would be used of you and me. We have been graciously adopted into God's family. How many of you are thankful for that? Amen? Most of us in the room are not Jewish by ethnicity. What a blessing that as Gentiles, God gives us the opportunity to be adopted into His family. So that first insight, bear in mind that this title, Son of God, is not simply used of Jesus in Scripture. It's used a number of other times for others. Insight number two, though, throughout the Bible, the description Son of God never means that someone was literally birthed by God. Now, it's important when we talk about this title, Son of God, to not assume that all of us in the room understand that that does not mean that God births people, that He births angels. God is spirit. The Bible is very clear. God does not have a body. God does not have reproductive organs. There is no Mrs. God. There is no wife-husband relationship other than, metaphorically, the relationship between Jesus and His bride, the church. Amen? And so we get to be the bride of Christ, but it is metaphorically spoken of in Scripture. There is no literal wife of God. There is no literal birthing by God. That teaching is Mormonism. Mormonism, which is not Christianity, Mormonism teaches that God is a celestial being called Elohim that has a cosmic wife who is with him for eternity, and he and that wife will literally birth and populate their planet. And Mormonism teaches that you and I, if we're good Mormons, the men that are good Mormons can become like God, having their own planet someday and inhabiting their planet with their spiritual and physical wife, just as so-called Elohim did years and years ago. That's Mormonism. That is not biblical Christianity. God does not birth. So throughout the Bible, whenever we come across this title, Son of God, it never means that someone was literally birthed by God. Since so many different people and angels are called sons of God in Scripture, how can we be sure that the title Son of God means something different for Jesus? Now here's where we start focusing on Jesus specifically. Insight number three. Throughout the Bible, the title Son of God takes on a very different meaning when it's used in reference to the Christ. Let me give you an example of that. In Psalm chapter 2, the second Psalm, Psalm chapter 2, verses 2 through 7, we read these words. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. 
So when we read the words, the anointed one, that's referring to who? Jesus. The other word for that is Christ, or the Hebrew word Messiah. So the anointed one is talking about Christ. It's talking about the Messiah. I'll continue in Psalm 2. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He rebukes them in His anger and terrifies them in His wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Who is my king that God has installed on His holy hill in Jerusalem? That too is the Christ, the Messiah. So, so far in this psalm, Psalm 2, we've got the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, called the king who's going to be anointed and there ruling on the hill in Jerusalem. And he goes on to say, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. So here God prophesies the coming of the Anointed One, the coming of the Christ, the coming of the Messiah. He calls Him King, and He also calls Him My Son. And so this is one example in the Old Testament of a prophetic Scripture that when it lifts up that term Son of God in the context of talking about the promised coming Messiah, those two terms, to a large extent, become interchangeable. The Christ, the Messiah and the Son of God become interchangeable in the Jewish mind when they're talking about the coming Messiah. Insight number four. As Jesus' ministry progressed, it became more and more clear that the title Son of God had taken on a much greater meaning. I like how Bible.org explains how this works. They write, The first century Jews understood the term the Son of God to mean the Messiah. And with our Lord's further claims, for instance, in John 5 and in John 8, they understood this term to mean that Jesus as the Son of God was not only the Messiah, but God incarnate. So you see, as Jesus' ministry is unfolding over His three to three and a half years of active ministry, at the beginning, the Jewish audience has this understanding that Son of God is a replacement title for Messiah. But as his ministry progresses, they begin to see that this title, Son of God, means something much, much more to Jesus. And so in John 19.7, we find the Jews accusing Jesus of blasphemy because by claiming to be the Son of God, Jesus, they believe, was claiming to be the very same nature as God and the claim to be of the same nature as God was a claim to be God. And so the Jews wanted to pick up stones and stone it because they understood what we thought all of our lifetimes is titled Son of God meant in reference to the Messiah means something much, much different to Jesus and His followers. And so therefore the Jews, because they didn't believe that Jesus was literally the Son of God, they said He must be blaspheming. We must kill Him. He must deserve the death penalty. John Piper makes an excellent point and This point of his will be our insight number five about this title, Son of God. Piper writes, The greater the title, Son of God, became in Jesus' life, the more it carried him to his death. Think about that. The greater the title, Son of God, became in Jesus' life, the more it carried him to his death. Isn't that true? The more it became clear to the people around Jesus that He was claiming to be God in human flesh, 
the more it became clear to Jesus' critics that he was claiming to be God in human flesh, the more they wanted to kill him. As Jesus' ministry progressed, he demonstrated through his teaching and his miracles that the title meant much, much more than just the Christ. He himself was divine. He himself was God in the flesh. And the more people came to realize that, the more Jesus' enemies wanted to kill him. So, bottom line, what is Mark's perspective on the first Christmas? I want to suggest to you that this is Mark's perspective. Jesus came to earth as the Christ and as the very Son of God. Meaning, He was 100% man, but He was also 100% God. Not birthed by God or created by God, but God Himself in human form. That's a beautiful perspective on Christmas, don't you think? God came down. Now I want to share with you a few other verses and insights that we can draw from Mark 1. Look again at verses 2 and 3. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for Him. Now, chances are over the last few weeks, you've been asked this question a time or two. Chances are over the next two weeks, you'll be asked this question even more. When you go to Walmart and you finally make it through that long line and get up to the lady at the checking stand or if you're going to Winco or Stater Brothers and getting those groceries, if you go to the mall, chances are you'll be asked this question. Maybe you'll get asked it even at work. Chances are you'll even get asked this question at church. And the question is this, are you ready for Christmas? Are you ready for Christmas? And a lot of us are already doing this number. No. Man, two weeks and one day, i got 15 days and counting. I haven't done all my shopping The shopping I have done, I'm trying to hide those gifts somewhere in a closet where someone won't find it. Uh, Gary, can I spill the beans here? So Gary had this great idea. He bought something for his wife, Angela, and he was telling us on uh, on Friday. Was that one? I guess it was yesterday. Ran into them at the mall, and he says, you know, I, I put it in a place I knew she wouldn't look on top of all of her craft stuff that's been gathering dust for months. And she would never think to look there. Within 24 hours, Angela found it. And we have that happen. Sometimes we're so tired from shopping, we stick it in the closet and it gets found before it gets wrapped. We've got all this busyness. A lot of us are not ready for Christmas. What was that? Oh, a year later. Yeah, that happens sometimes too. Where did I put that thing? And you find it 4th of July. We've still got shopping to do. We've still probably got some Christmas cards to write and send out. We've got Christmas programs to attend. And we just have to bake that yummy, yummy fruitcake. No, you don't. You really don't need to bake that fruitcake. I was at Costco yesterday. It was an absolute zoo in there. Costco was crazy yesterday. And in back by their bakery section, they had pallets full of fruitcake. And i got to tell you, I was in that store killing time for an hour and a half. I didn't see a single shopping cart with a fruitcake in it. But even Costco is convinced they got to make the fruitcake. We've got all of this stuff going on. People ask us, are you ready for Christmas? I'd like to suggest to you that here in verses 2 and 3 of Mark chapter 1, Mark reminds us that there's a much more important question to ask ourselves this Christmas season. Not are you ready for Christmas, but are you ready for Jesus? Are you ready for Jesus? Notice that he uses the word prepare twice in these two verses. Prepare. Prepare. 
Mark wants us to know that before Jesus began His ministry, God sent John the baptizer ahead of Him to prepare the way. And notice John's message that Mark mentions here in verses 2 and 3. As John came to prepare the way for the Lord, he preached in the wilderness this message, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for Him. So let's wrap our minds around this this powerful insight here. John was sent to prepare for the coming of Jesus, and those who hoped to be in God's will were called to prepare for the coming of Jesus as well. So what do you think the chances are that God is much more concerned about you preparing your heart for Jesus this Christmas than He is with you preparing your table for the Christmas ham? What do you think the chances are that God is much more concerned with you preparing your schedule to give Jesus Christ the worship that He alone deserves this Christmas season instead of preparing that fruitcake or preparing that Christmas card list or preparing that white elephant gift for work. Oh, the ham and the gifts and the lights and all the razzle-dazzle, those are a wonderful part of the season, but they are all meaningless if we don't prepare ourselves for the heart of Christmas. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born to save the world. Friends, God wants us to prepare ourselves and our families to celebrate His coming, doesn't He? God wants us to prepare to worship Him and worship His majesty. God wants us to prepare to recommit our lives to Him. And now I want to draw your attention to one other marvelous Christmas insight in verses 3 and 4. Look again. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for Him. Then verse 4, And so John came, baptizing in the desert and preparing, excuse me, and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now most of you probably remember what happened in the Old Testament book of Exodus. In Exodus, Moses led the people of Israel for 40 years through the wilderness. You remember that, right? He led them through the wilderness and that 40 years of wandering in the Judean wilderness prepared them to enter the promised land under the leadership of who? After Moses stepped down, who took over? Joshua. Catch this. Here in Mark chapter 1, we have John the baptizer leading a new generation of Israelites through a wilderness that was just a few short miles from the wilderness where Moses left his people in the capable hands of Joshua. Remember that Joshua and Jesus are the same name. Both the Hebrew name Joshua and the Greek name Jesus mean Yahweh, the Lord saves. So Joshua ushered in Yahweh's salvation to Old Testament Israel on a small scale. Leading them out of slavery in Egypt was Moses, and then his successor, Joshua, leading them into the promised land the chosen nation of Israel. He brings them deliverance and salvation on a small scale. But then comes the New Testament Joshua, Jesus Christ according to Mark 1, who John in much that same wilderness is leading the people to repent of their sins and prepare themselves for Jesus. And the New Testament Joshua doesn't like the Old Testament Joshua simply bring salvation on a local scale, on a small scale, Jesus Christ brings salvation on a global scale, doesn't He? Jesus Christ far surpasses the Old Testament Joshua. In both cases, God's salvation came in the wilderness. Time and time again in Scripture, we find that God speaks to us in the wilderness. 
God reaches out to us in the wilderness. God calls to us to repent and change our evil ways in the wilderness. God forgives us and ushers us into the promised land from the wilderness. Do you suppose there's an important lesson in here for us this Christmas season? I can't help but think so. Mark wants us to understand that the story of Christmas, the story of Jesus, begins in the wilderness. It begins in the wilderness. And let's be honest, for many of us, this is not the most wonderful time of the year. I know some of you this Christmas season are hurting. Some of you have lost a loved one. And this is your first Christmas without your spouse, without your child, without your parent. Just yesterday morning, I was checking my phone after waking up, and I had gotten a text a little bit earlier from my wife Christine's brother. Her brother David sent me this text that Grandma Jean, his wife's mom, had just passed away in the night, Friday night. And so we were texting back and forth a little bit this morning, and looks like the funeral's going to be next Friday. There's a family, my own family, grieving this Christmas season. Praise God, she was a solid, solid follower of Jesus Christ. She was a sweet, sweet saint. And so we're rejoicing that she's no longer in any pain, no longer dealing with the cancer she was dealing with, celebrating with the Lord this Christmas, but there's still that void. For some of us, our finances are worse than they were a year ago. For some of us, our relationships and our family aren't what they used to be. Maybe we're out of a job. Maybe school's going terrible for some of you who are in high school or college. Whatever it is, some of us are saying this is not the most wonderful time of the year. This Christmas season is really hard. And if that's the case for you, I especially do not want you to miss one of these key insights and messages from Mark chapter 1. Jesus Christ came into the wilderness. Jesus Christ came to pull us out of the wilderness into a life of peace and hope and perseverance, and blessing. God is saying this, I believe, to us. If you are in the wilderness this Christmas season, Jesus is coming. In fact, Jesus is already here. He is the heart of Christmas. And so take hold of Him with everything you've got. Take hold of Him and do not let go. Let's pray. Lord, You are an awesome God. We thank You, Lord Jesus, for coming to earth on Christmas morning. We thank You for penetrating the darkness. We thank You for penetrating the sin. We thank You for coming into that muck and mire of our lives, for coming into that wilderness. We thank You, Lord, that the heart of Christmas is is not simply for those who are on top of the mountain. But it seems at times it's even more so for those who are in the valley. Lord Jesus, I thank You for that Old Testament Joshua who led his people into the promised land. But I thank You even more for the New Testament Joshua, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Anointed One. The Chosen One. The Savior of the world. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for coming. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for offering us salvation. Thank You for offering us hope. Thank You for offering us peace. We love You, Lord Jesus. I pray if there's anyone in this room today who has never made that decision to accept You as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of salvation. 
today would be the day of life change. That we would receive that message that John preached that we need to repent. We need to get right with you to put our sin behind us, to put you in the driver's seat of our lives and keep you there. That, Lord, we be obedient. And, Lord, not just keep a decision to ourselves, but proclaim the world that we follow Jesus. That we would obey you, Lord, and take that step by obeying you in Christian baptism. Lord, that we would be in your word each day. We'd be praying each day. That we'd be in that relationship with you that you've called us to be in. Lord, I pray that you would help us to come to you. I pray especially for those that are hurting. Especially those, Lord, who are in that valley. Draw them unto the Christ of Christmas. In Jesus' name.